0: Welcome to the Maitripa College podcast. Maitripa College is a Buddhist institution of higher education founded by Yangtze Rinpoche in 2005 in Portland, Oregon. We offer two graduate degree programs, a Master of Arts in Buddhist Studies and a Master of Divinity and Classical Tibetan Language Studies year-round and through a summer-intensive format. Founded upon three pillars of scholarship, meditation, and service, The Maitreva College Curriculum combines Western academic, contemplative learning and traditional Tibetan Buddhist disciplines. Through the development of wisdom and compassion, our graduates are empowered with a sense of responsibility to work joyfully for the well-being of others. They become agents of positive change in the world and are shaping the development of Buddhism in the West. As scholar practitioners, chaplains, professional translators, doctoral degree candidates, leaders in the nonprofit world, educators, and more. We invite you to join us to make your practice your life. In this week's episode, taken from a special online community program in the spring, Venerable Rabina Corton teaches about managing your mind in difficult times. Day one, wisdom.
1: So, Namdrol, the plan was to talk, it said, I think it says, talk about how to deal with difficult times, something like that, right? Okay. If that's not now, then what is, you know? Well, you can say, the interesting point is that Buddha is saying to us, that waiting for things to go wrong to start practicing is kind of like a bit like you've forgotten that such a, you've never heard of a mechanic and you drive your car to the ground and one day you're on the freeway at 120 miles an hour and you suddenly notice your wheels are falling off. That's when things go wrong. And then you go, oh, my wheels are falling off. What will I do? Well, Buddha suggests that's a bit late and we know that. Well, that's how unfortunately how we tend, isn't it, tend to deal with life problems. Not, you know practical problems we love we have our mechanics we have our we have our electricians we have our plumbers you know we have our dentists we have our nutritionists we don't have our mental mental mechanics i promise you it's just on our culture is it and this is really a very a very valid point i mean look at the way we're brought up you know in our world where the emphasis is on the outside world you think about it and that's not just the world that's what buddha calls that samsara this is how we all are we're addicted to this the second we wake up in the morning So the second we go to bed at night, what are we utterly focused on is the outside world, the events. So we know well how to do events and make cakes and drive cars and and keep our mechanics happy. But we, we, we only, and because of that, it's a very simple point, because we're so fixated on the outside, we only notice what's happening on the inside when it's shouting and yelling, when it's vomiting out the mouth or when you're inert in bed with depression, you know. And so that's a very practical point. I think in our culture we have so much anxiety so much stress look at us so much fears because because we wait till it's too late to notice this is the incredibly simple point that buddha is making so he's got these techniques that it says don't wait for the bad things to happen to deal with the bad things you don't wait for things to break to realize that things are impermanent you don't wait to know that things are going to change you when you know it already and you and you and when the things are going well but you understand that everything exists within the context and there's just one simple point that buddha makes that everything in its nature is changing then when it does change you're not surprised so this is so we often think we're, we suffer because things go wrong no we don't suffer because things go wrong we suffer because we have this deep panic stricken assumption that they shouldn't go wrong so and this is the point that buddha is making it's really hard to see it but this is his essential point that basically our mind you know it's full of these layers and layers and layers and layers of, real, of misconceptions, but so instinctive, so primordial, so natural to us. And he says we're born with them, you know, that, that they're virtually at the level of an assumption. And we don't check assumptions, do we? And we only, hear, we only check what we think when it's a very vivid conceptual story in the front of our mind. When it's deep in our bones at the level of a feeling and at the level of an assumption, it's very hard to see it. And then we, when we're caught unawares, when things go wrong. So this is the real issue. You know, the real issue is to start learning to work on our mind before the bad things happen. So here we are with bad things happening. It's a wake-up call. So you don't just say, oh, well, my wheels are falling off and might as well give up. No, you learn from it. You learn from it. And to know that you've got to have, a, you know, to start to see the the wheels wobbling. And this is when the, the before they become deadly serious. It's, a very, it's such a practical issue, you know? So the Buddha's approach is pretty, it's not, it's not complicated. It really isn't complicated. It's not, in its nature, it's not technically difficult, but it is the most difficult job we'll ever do only because we're, so, we're, so, we're super familiar with the opposite. So what does that mean? Well, you know, if we look at the word Buddha, it's just so telling. This end result of all this hard work, the Buddha would say that, you know, especially if we look at the, the Tibetan packaging of the teachings, as we know, there's this wonderful packaging of all the Buddha's teachings from A to Z, A to Z, you know, is known as the Lam Rim, this gradual path, this course, basically, that, you know, you junior school, high school, university, and you graduate as a Buddha long term. If we look at the etymology of that word, it's incredibly simple. It's, it's, it's outrageous, actually. It indicates, it it, 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 it it indicates Buddha's methodology, the job to be done, you know. So the, the, the so the first syllable, bud, or indeed the, the Tibetan equivalent, sung, this implies the utter eradication, and hear these words literally, please, the utter eradication from our mind, our consciousness, of all neuroses, all ego, all fears all grasping, all anxiety, all stress, all anger, depression, attachment, arrogance, low self-esteem, you name it, we are intimate with these states of mind and we see them evident everywhere around us. Buddha is quite shocking, he's quite radical, you know. He's actually have found from his own experience, this is what Buddha is, he's not some creator who makes up this stuff. He has found from his own direct experience that this stuff is not at the core of our being. They say in Buddhist psychology it's adventitious. It sounds very grand. What it means is what he's found is, is that it's not integral to who we are. It's not integral to who we are. Okay, it's wonderful to hear it in 20th century terms, 21st century. I mean, last century, 20th, 20th century, one Canadian scientist, I can't think of his name. He said that this neuroplasticity was one of the greatest findings of the 20th century. And I tell you, that's coming, these findings are coming as a result of these amazing experiments on the brains of meditators. We have now discovered that you're not stuck with the brain you're born with. I mean, I'm so happy we're finally agreeing with the Buddha. He's been telling us quietly for two and a half thousand years that we're not stuck with the mind we're born with, you know. And this is indicate this first syllable. It tells us what, what our potential is. It's outrageous, psychologically. Not here as religion. The second syllable, even more powerful. Not only can we rid the mind of all the rubbish, we can develop to perfection all the other stuff in our mind, which you are also intimately familiar with. Love, compassion, intelligence, joy. These are, these are natural parts of our mind, the Buddha would say that he has discovered that are integral, these are integral to who we are. You can't remove these from your mind. You can, you can pollute them. You can, you can squash them down, but you can't remove them at a conventional level. This is the nature of who we are. This is a very powerful concept. And and this kind of, this psychological concept we can see has no, has no equivalent in modern psychology, no equivalent in neuroscience. It's very marvelous, and this is the end result of all this hard work. So, understanding that etymology, rid of all the rubbish, full of all the goodness. This tells us the job to be done. As Lami puts it, to be your own therapist. So, there's more to being a Buddhist than that, but that's the central job of being a Buddhist. You know. So, if we're familiar with. Uh, and so, if we're familiar, you know, with this Lam Rim, this packaging, we know very well that the first level of practice. Entry level, junior school, grade one. Don't even worry about your mind yet. But control. You know, is, is to learn to harness your behavior, to learn to harness the, vo- the 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 voices of ego, the voices of attachment and fear and anger and jealousy and depression. And that's the body and the speech. You know. So this is, so we so this is the very first level of practice, which sounds kind of boring to us. You know, Be, behave nicely. I mean, our grandmother tells us that. But that's the first level of practice. And why? Because when we can begin to actually be in control of what we say and what we do, we're harnessing the crazy energy of the mind actually, because it's the mind that drives that behavior. So then we can get to high school, to the middle scope of the lamb Rim, and that's where we start to be our own therapist. That's what we're gonna discuss here. What we're doing with our mind, you know? This is Buddha's expertise, it's very clear. And if we can hear the end result, Buddha, free of all the rubbish, full of all the goodness, which is hard to hear, because actually in our culture, we know we give equal status to all this stuff. In our neuroscience, in our psychology, in our psychiatry, in all our models of the mind in our modern world, this, this concept is weird. There's nothing equivalent. There's nothing like this. It's a bizarre idea. Because Why? Because so totally, if we've observed the world, observed humans, and even indeed observed creatures, we're going to see that anger and attachment and fear and jealousy and depression are what we call normal. And when we say normal, what we mean is you'd be abnormal if you didn't have them. So this is a very deep assumption in our minds. So in all of our science and our psychology, we take it as a given that those parts of us are just naturally a part of a normal person. Like you'd you'd be not a real person if you didn't have them. That's a very strong assumption, you know. But the Buddha's got a different view. It's It's quite shocking actually, it's quite radical. He has found, like I said, that all this unhappy stuff that we know is unhappy, Check the last time you're depressed or angry or jealous, you know it's awful. Check the last time you're on the receiving end of it, you know it's awful. But he has found that this stuff is not at the core of our being and can be removed. So that's the job of being a Buddhist. Morality, general good ethics, behaving nicely and not killing and not stealing. A good communist would tell you to do that. A good Muslim, a good Christian, a good materialist, a good Buddhist, that's common to everybody. That's junior school. But high school, this middle scope of practice this is the essence of the Buddha's unique approach, you know. So we're very familiar with words like attachment and anger and jealousy and anxiety. We're familiar with the words and absolutely we are familiar with the feelings. But for the Buddha's perspective, this is not enough. Feelings are so powerful for us, you know, and that we usually mean by feelings when the body is very involved. And this makes sense because in our culture we are only the body. We only notice even what's going on in our mind when the body feels it. But this is, again, that's the wheels falling off. It's way too late as far as the Buddha is concerned, you know. So we have to learn these skills. I mean, this is the long term. Here we are with the wheels falling off right now. Maybe some of us are losing our jobs. Some of us are suffering with, with sickness. Some of us are suffering just from general anxiety by the world, the way the world is going. This is the wheels falling off to some degree. So there's two things we're talking about to get us ready for when the wheels fall off next, which is how we start our practice now, and also how do we deal when the wheels are falling off? Well, you know, in a sense there's not much we can do when the wheels are falling off because it's so dire. The best you can do is damage control. The best you can do and learn from it the real one is learn from it. I'd better learn about mechanics. I'd better start noticing the wheels wobbling before it gets too serious. And then I go to the mechanic and I can fix it so they don't fall off on the freeway. So in other words, we need to learn to recognize the real learning from this drama now is if we can't handle it, if we're freaking out, if we're having anxiety attacks, if we're worrying about money, if we're freaking out about losing our job, if we're terrified of getting COVID-19 or whatever, that's the fear rising. So we should understand it analytically while we're having the fear as the wheels are falling off. But the longer-term learning is how to, how, to, how, to de, how to develop the skill to begin to recognize this stuff before it gets severe. This is the point, you know. And this is something very strong in our culture. We only, this is even when we think about meditation, you know. Our assumption about meditation is so weird. One of the commonest misconceptions is that it's an alternative to a pill. In other words, you don't even think to meditate if you're feeling well. I mean, if I'm in love with Fred, I don't know who's my boyfriend here. Have I got a boyfriend here? I can't see. There's a man. This business of waiting till the drama happens before we start to deal with it. That's the point I'm making. Again, repeat, we would not do that with our bodies. We would not do that with our houses or our plumbing or our electricity or our mechanics. And this is a serious, not a sort of cliche, but we don't, we have that attitude when it comes to our mind. Because we don't notice until it's severe. We don't notice until the body's involved. And for the Buddha, and I'm going to get into this, that's the tip of the tip of the iceberg of the problem. That's what I mean by the wheels falling off. We only even notice we're angry when the words are vomiting out the mouth. We only notice we're having an anxiety attack when you can't breathe. We only notice we're depressed when you can't get out of bed. It's just too late, you know. So let's say meditation Then we think okay you've heard about meditation but let's say David and I are in love the relationship is perfect there's no wheels falling off and someone says oh you know Rabina, you could learn to meditate and I'll say what are you talking about I'm not unhappy why should I meditate I'm happy this is very powerful you think about it because we assume meditation is an alternative to a pill which means you only take a pill when the bad things happen when you know when the wheels fall off it's just a wrong view it's very incredible you know so when when we start to fight, then I'll go to my therapist, you know. I want to kill David. What shall I do? And if I go to my therapist even now and say, oh, I get annoyed. He doesn't put this toilet seat down. My therapist will laugh at me and send me home. Because the wheels are only beginning to wobble and we're not concerned. We, we, In our culture, we wait till it becomes severe. It's very, very fascinating. And why? Because we assume an ordinary person with ordinary attachment and ordinary anxiety and ordinary stress and ordinary annoyance and ordinary guilt is ordinary, is normal. We don't consider that to be a mental problem. But this is Buddha's point. He's got a much more subtle assessment, analysis of mental problems. And it's a very good word, you know? It's a very crucial point actually to get. We only notice when the bad things happen. We only notice our mind when we're severely angry or jealous or depressed. And it's simply too late. It's not totally too late, but we learn from it that we have to start seeing our mind before it gets to that level. And then um, even without being highly evolved beings, I promise you, if we can learn using Buddha's practical skills of getting some concentration technique under our belt, and beginning to know our mind using his model of the mind, because it's quite distinct, then no matter how difficult life is, we will have the tools to manage it. We will not lose the plot, no matter how bad things get. This is a very, very powerful point. And I mean, I can prove it easily, because so many of, you know, you listen to Tibetans how they talk. They've, they've spent their lives looking at their minds, they're the ones who are practitioners, and when the bad things have happened, they've been equipped to deal with them. And I tell you, my friend's in prison. Many of my friends in prison who are using Buddhist tools, okay, the wheels have fallen off, they're in prison, but they've been able to use these tools to help them literally change their mind so they can navigate these difficult situations. So the crucial thing to understand here then, using Buddha's analysis, there's two things going on. There's a the stuff outside and there's a stuff in our mind. But we've got this view, I think, like I'm suggesting, about our mind that we're sort of like just you wake up in the morning and you just are who you are and you deal with the kitchen and the toilet and the husband and the kids and the traffic and you navigate and you do your best. The, and the outside world for us is the key thing. When you talk about being having a bad day, well, do you, well, how did you go today, Rabina? Oh, it was a terrible day. Tell me about your suffering and I will give you a Detailed description of the events that happened outside. If I'm happy, oh, wow, Ravina, you're happy. Tell me about your happiness. I will give you a detailed description of the events because we are addicted to the outside. And what is the outside? It's the object of our grosser level of consciousness using the Buddha's analysis, which is just the object of our sensory consciousness. You know, And that's what we pay all our attention to. We, we hear, we can hear, we're noticing underneath this rumbling all day, these thoughts rumbling along, unedited, berserk, uncontrolled thoughts. No one invites them in. You don't consciously think them. They're just there. We and we consider this is normal. And it is normal insofar as we're all like it. But the Buddha would call it mental illness. He'd say we're all insane. So he's using his more more radical analysis in the in in the sense that his his views, his his methods enable us to become these amazingly sophisticated beings who can learn to completely control our minds. And that's just the result of getting single point of concentration. I mean, the Buddha says, we've had that in countless lifetimes. This is what is invented by these amazing Hindus more than 3,000 years ago. They're the ones, these geniuses, who created this marvelous skill, this psychological skill that enables us to... to to plumb the depths of our mind, to get super laser-like focus so that we use this brilliant laser-like focus to do the real work of unpacking and unraveling and reconfiguring the contents of our mind. This is the job of being a Buddhist, you know. This is quite unique to the Buddha. So the outside world is one thing, but we give it all the power. And then the, the sensory consciousness, which experiences the outside world, this is too, is so powerful for us. And then eventually, you know, it triggers something in the mental consciousness, in our f- thoughts and feelings and emotions, because we've never paid attention to these until they're raging or depressed. Then, we, then it's, that's why it is so difficult to deal with our mental problems. This is why it's so difficult. We let them, we've let them unattended all our lives, you know, because it's not our culture. This is Buddha's skill. It's incredible, actually. It's so brilliant. And it's got nothing to do with religion. A communist could do, would get benefit from this, you know but it needs integrity and it needs, it needs courage to do it because the key point the Buddha is making, and this all comes to this, as far as we're concerned, the outside world is the main source of my happiness and the main source of my suffering. Sorry, not only is the outside world the main source of my happiness, it is my happiness and it is my suffering. And we know we are responding to that happiness and those lovely events and ugly events, but we're kind of these innocent victims. It's got nothing to do with us. We can't help but it. it's not our fault. Of course I'm angry. Look at the COVID-19. Of course I'm upset. Of course I'm anxious. Look at my boyfriend. We, we talk like this. We find a kind of logical reason for ego to get off the hook. Then the assumption is it's not my fault and I can do nothing about it. And then it's my husband has to change or the events have to change or the or the, or the, or the president has to change, not me. This is how we are. This is a dualistic way that ego works as far as is concerned. So his approach is, yep, the outside world plays a role. Take a look. Look at your life. But guess what, honey, he says, guess what? I've got some techniques for you to help you start to navigate your own mind and transform it and change it and mould your, as Lama Zoba says, we can mould our mind into any shape we like. This is Buddha's expertise. Of course, it's the hardest job we'll ever do because we are addicted to change in the outside. And our philosophy, our assumptions reinforce that, you know. This takes courage to start looking in, that my mind actually plays a role. I mean, one time Lama Zoba said, and this is pretty shocking, You hear it. He said the vast majority of all humans on this planet have absolutely no idea that what goes on in their mind plays any role at all in their lives. This is pretty shocking. Well, analyze, analyze ourselves, you know, it's quite shocking. And I would add to that, not only do we not know that what goes on in our mind plays any role, we don't know what goes on in our mind, period, you know. And this is Buddha's expertise. So how does all that play out now in our dramas? I mean, maybe we're fortunate. We've got homes. I can see, you know, none of us are sitting on the road under a bridge, are we, with our computer? We've mostly got a bed to sleep in and food in our fridge. I mean, I can say in one sense, my life hasn't even changed. The only change for me is I'm not going on airplanes, you know. I just walk in three feet into this room and turn on the computer and I see you all. So, I mean, I'm still getting my food. I've got a house and I don't go for walks often because I'm lazy. So nothing much has changed. But look at the dramatic change for so many people on this planet. It's unbelievable, the suffering, you know, unbelievable, the suffering. I can't even bear to think about poor India, what's going to happen there with all the poor people. But even for us, I think often for us, perhaps it's the anxiety. I don't know about people. You can tell me later when we start to ask questions. It's the anxiety and, and, and the uncertainty, you know. So how do we look at these? Let's, do, let's look at Buddha's analysis of these different experiences. Let's look at un- the uncertainty of it. This is a really evident teaching from the Buddha, a very straightforward one. You know, uncertainty means all of a sudden we can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. That's what we mean by uncertainty. And so the assumption there is that we assu- the assumption is that we can predict what's going to happen tomorrow, and we believe that if we think it's going to happen tomorrow, it will happen tomorrow. Well, the Buddha calls that grasping at things as permanent, grasping at things as unchanging. That's what he calls that. So when it comes to our own self, we have this profound one, as Lama Zopa calls it, this, this intense grasping at permanent me. But especially right now, it's the outside world, isn't it? So then this is again the, the point that I started with. We think we're suffering now, even if it's just some uncertainty, because suddenly the world is not so predictable. But there's an assumption there that it should that it was predictable before. But this is how we work. So this is linked very strongly also to our attachment. So attachment is this primordial, deluded state of mind, disturbing state of mind that really effectively for the Buddha is the main source of our pain. And it's the source of the other experiences of pain that we have. That this attachment is so powerful. There's this little junkie in us. This is the main one. This is this junkie in us that just only can bear the nice things. It only wants the nice things. It only wants the nice things. And what does the nice things mean? It means it's pretty intense. It means it only wants what I want. You know, so this is kind of pointing to this kind of model of the way the mind works for the Buddha. He actually talks about we've got 84,000 distinct mental problems. They call them afflictions in Buddhism, in Tibetan and Sanskrit. Well, you know, mental problems are a good term. Or mental affliction or mental illness, I would even suggest, a mental problem. But he narrows them all down. He said, they also seem to three. This is very powerful. And we know the Buddha calls them the three poisons. So cute, you know, the three poisons. Ego grasping, which gives rise to attachment, which gives rise to anger. These three, this is like a hierarchical relationship between them, you know. So understanding these, which on the face of it, in our modern psychological world, sounds so cute. So simple, even simplistic, but they're quite profound. And if we can understand these, we can understand our own selves very well while we suffer, and when we look around, we can understand other people as well. It's pretty profound, you know? So this ego grasping is the root one. It's the source of all the problems altogether. This primordial mistaken sense of a separate, bereft, lonely, set-in-stone, concrete me. It's like a sleeping lion most of the time. And on the basis of this, its main voice is this bottomless pit of attachment. It's multifaceted it's fundamental energy is dissatisfaction never happy always finding fault nothing's ever enough i'm not enough i don't get enough it is not enough i am not enough no matter how much david says he loves me not enough we have this it's an aching disease we all have which is the consequence of practicing attachment in the past what it says. then on the basis of that now if i don't have enough and if i'm not enough clearly i have to hanker after something don't i to fill up the gaping hole this is the proactive way, the obvious way that this attachment functions in our daily life. So then it's this us, and it's being brutal to talk this way, but it's a good way of talking. This us is there all the time, constantly desperate to get only the nice things. And it will it does everything it can to make sure we get the nice sound, the nice smell, the nice taste, the nice job, the nice furniture, the nice situation, the nice event, the nice everything. And it can only bear the nice things. And what's the response when it doesn't get the nice things, which is a 1,000 times a day, which is right at this moment? That's called aversion. And that's got a spectrum as well, from the violent anger to annoyed, irritated, frustrated, upset, anxious, stressed, despair, and depression. There's a whole kind of spectrum of attachment and the spectrum of aversion. They sound so simple, but they are profound, really profound. You know, So becoming first intellectually familiar with these theories of Buddhas, then using this as the map, or the grid for your own to become aware of your own mind. This is the stuff of being a Buddhist, becoming familiar with these states of mind. And all the other rubbish as a result, you know, come on top of these, like the branches, you know. So attachment is primordial. So, because when attachment gets what it wants, so with our life's been fairly reasonable, we've got, you know, decent husbands and children and money in the bank and a job. So, because attachment is getting what it wants, and because the attachment can't bear to think of not having it. So then we add this other lie on top, which makes it look like it won't change. So because it's nice today, this is a mistake, because life was nice before COVID-19, let's say in one degree or another, and then suddenly this drama happens. We, we assume back then, because it was nice then, it's going to be nice tomorrow. We assume that. I mean, you know, we assume that, you know. It's such a powerful assumption. We assume because it's nice today, it'll be nice tomorrow. But this is the problem too. When the unnice thing happens and we fall down to despair, we unfortunately grasp at that as permanent as well. And that's one of the things that we're suffering right now. And this is a really good practical, a practical piece of advice. When we realize that everything's impermanent, then we're not surprised when the bad thing happens. But when the bad things do happen, because we also do realize impermanence, we know there is light at the end of the tunnel. And that's one of the big sufferings when bad things happen, because we just can't see that it's ever going to change. So it flips both ways, you know. We live in a fantasy land that everything's perfect and, and beautiful, and we'll be forever, we'll be we'll be together forever. And this is so perfect, and we'll, you know everything is wonderful. Now I've found happiness, and it'll last. It's a fantasy. It's not being and it's not being cynical to say it'll change. It's a it's a recognition of reality that it changes. And the flip side is when the bad stuff does happen. And then, like I said, we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel because we now think that that is permanent. And that's a mistake as well. So, right now, we can apply that teaching. I remember seeing on one of those, you know, all these wonderful things on Twitter. And, and the, you know, when I read my newspapers and they quote all the little things in the papers, and there's one 97 year old lady who's giving this little talk about it. it'll pass, everything's wonderful, it'll pass, keep happy. She said, this was just a beautiful, not panic. She wasn't stricken, she wasn't depressed. It'll all be okay, she said. It changes. Things happen. It'll all be good, she said. Optimistic, you know. And that's what not seeing things as permanent comes. When things are bad, you know things change. And that immediately, I mean, it sounds so cute, you know. Oh, it's okay. It'll pass. We get annoyed when people say that to us because the suffering is so unbearable, isn't it? But we know it's true and it can suddenly be optimistic. And then when you're sort of believing, clinging to the beautiful job, the beautiful husband, everything being perfect, and you're setting it in stone, fearful, frantic that it might change, but unable to bear the thought of it, then by thinking about how this is impermanent, it can be very sobering. Not, your happiness won't decrease, but you, you won't be so hyperventilating, you know. So, so, and this is an interesting point, across the board, Buddha's approach is very specific and we're, and we're implying it here. The key, He says the key factor, the key energy, the key factor of all unhappy states of mind, one is that they're disturbing, and that's pretty evident. But the other is that this is the key factor. When we get this, we get Buddhist psychology, and therefore we get Buddhist practice. The key factor is these unhappy, disturbing emotions have this delusional component, meaning the extent to which we're caught up in attachment, is a sense to which we're delusional, meaning we're not in touch with reality. Because attachment exaggerates the deliciousness of something. It embellishes. It exaggerates David's deliciousness. It exaggerates David's role in making me happy. That's what attachment does. And then, And then we add grasping at permanence to it, and then we are setting ourselves up for a nightmare, you know? Because things do change. And because attachment is not a valid assessment of David, it over-exaggerates his deliciousness. It over-exaggerates his deliciousness. And therefore, we have a fantasy of what David is, and then we have fantasy expectations, and then we manipulate David to become what we think he should be, and then we're disappointed and despair when it turns out to be not like that. This is why we suffer up and down like yo-yos every single day. So Buddha's one way of describing very clearly and quite technically Buddha's explanation for why we suffer is because we have misconceptions, because we, we don't, we're not in touch with reality. This is very hard to hear, it sounds so kind of cosmic, not in touch with reality. We don't know what it means, reality, you know. But this is Buddha's approach, it's very powerful. So he suffer. he says, we're anxious or worried or angry or despairing because this is the response of attachment being thwarted. We're all perky and happy because of attachment. And then we get depressed and anxious when things go wrong. So these are interpretations in our mind, he's saying. So one of the ways of practicing, like right now, when the problems are there, is to to remind ourselves of of Buddha's interpretation of what is real and apply that conceptually first. Say it to ourselves. Well, things do change. We say it as a cliche, but when things are really bad, it can be a very powerful technique to help us steady our mind. You know, when we're overexcited and berserk and believing things as as permanent and divine forever, we can. It can be very sobering for our mind. And this is the point. So when, when we think of Buddha's different teachings, how we apply them in daily life is at a theoretical level. You 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 re, you you use Buddha's wise approach wise assessment of things to argue with ego's misconceptions, you know, this is very much what practice is. We have this very strong thing. I think about practice, meaning something you do when your eyes are closed. This is just so superstitious. It's ridiculous. You know, practice is every second of the day and it's at the conceptual level, but as a cognitive therapist and I am not joking, he's a cognitive therapist, you know, so the more we can hear, and this is the Buddhist point, the conceptual story that informs the anxiety, beneath the anxiety, beneath the feeling, beneath the feeling of anger, beneath the feeling of depressed, beneath the feeling of attachment. If we start looking to look into our mind more deeply, which is what we need to learn to do using concentration and meditation every day. We're going to start hearing the conceptual story of all these thousands of rivers of thoughts that are fly underneath, rolling away, you know. This is the job of being a Buddhist. And then we, and when we're in more control of these, and we understand what's going on. Even when it is bad, we will be able to navigate it. We won't lose the plot, you know. Because the Buddha's point, finally, as hard as it is to see it, is what goes on in our mind, is the main source of the suffering and the happiness, not the event. This is a simple, clear point the Buddha's making, as shocking as it is to us, you know. Okay, let's do a little baby session. We'll just do a simple, whether we've done this a million times, whether advanced practitioners or whether are baby practitioners, let's act as if we've never done it before, okay? So first of all, the, the, the yogis all present... A certain way for the body to be. So we we'll start with that because remember the body doesn't meditate, people. Your mind does. But all the great yogis have found that having the body in, a, in, a, in an appropriate position makes it conducive for the mind to do its job properly. So we'll just go through those for the for the for just for the habit, habit of it. So if you're sitting cross-legged, fantastic. And Dalai Lama, I remember said, His Holiness one time said, it's really auspicious to start your session having your legs in full lotus position. And the, what full lotus position means is you see the legs up on each thigh. Because when the, in the more advanced practices, because sort of we need to, apparently to be in this position because of the subtle energies, the subtle mind and the subtle energies align very nicely when the body is like that. Because these great meditators just spend months in meditation, this keeps the body stable. You don't topple over, you know? So it's something very practical. But if you can't do it, as Holly says, start your session, even just for a moment to begin the session. It's really auspicious for the ability to be able to do it in the future. If you can't get the both legs up, get one leg up. If you can't do that, sit regular cross-legged. And if you can't do that, like most of us, sit in a chair or your cushion or sit in a chair or your couch or whatever you're sitting in. But the crucial thing is if you can, don't lean into the back of your chair. If you're sitting in a comfy couch, if you can thrust yourself forward and and hold up your own body, because if you slump into the couch or the chair, the mind gets sluggish if you can hold yourself up, that's fantastic. The crucial thing is, though, to have the body upright. But then as soon as we sit upright, we tense our muscles. So flop your muscles, flop the abdomen, flop the muscles around your shoulders and your back. But keep the body upright. It's a nice combination, you know. And your hands, I mean, all the yogis do different things, but the one we learned classically in the beginning is your left hand underneath like this, I can't see if you can see me, right on top, thumbs touching. And I've heard somewhere in the distance, I heard there's some teaching that says these two thumbs touching, there's like two subtle channels related to bodhicitta there, I don't know. So in your lap. Otherwise, put them on your knees, you do what you like. And the crucial thing is your head, okay? And all of these, this position is coming from the meditators over the centuries, and they're all very practical. So the head, if you have it a bit thrust forward, your mind can get agitated. So have it slightly tilted forward, okay? chin tucked in a little bit and then your mouth the jaw jaw relaxed and then you maybe your your lips slightly apart then initially oddly enough the tip of your tongue resting behind the top teeth just near the palate and it seems the great meditators have found that if it's meditating for hours this stops you from dribbling it's very practical and then finally your eyes Again, all the great meditators who spend hours and hours in meditation, which would include during the day, in order for the mind to stay sharp, which is one of the dangers for the mind to become spaced out, in order for your mind to stay sharp, you need to have light. So the light going in can really help you. But most of us might get distracted. So we just keep your eyes lightly closed. But I really have to say a couple more things. So if you're going to be uncomfortable before before we do the actual meditation, I'll describe a couple of things first, okay? The important thing is when we think, now we're going, to, we're going to do a simple meditation of watching the breath. The breath Buddha taught is a very simple uh, object that's just there, that happens naturally, that we can then use that as a focal point. So the thing is, we'll say, I am watching my breath. Well, there's no little I in there, believe me. There's no mini me in there watching anything. So let's just be more precise and think, well, my mind is watching the breath. But let's be even more precise, which part of our mind? Well, there's many parts of our mind and we develop these in the Buddhist model of the mind. We discuss it in other classes, but these are developed in this amazing technique. So there's many parts of our mind, like the mechanics of our mind, that all do a brilliant job. We have to train them. So the part, if you like, the part of your mind that's going to watch the breath is, you call it attention. Every second it's working. So we're going to pay attention to that breath. Very simple. That's our decision. That's what the technique is. Nothing holy, nothing fancy. The job isn't to have a good feeling. The job isn't to make the thoughts go away. The job isn't anything like that. The job is simply to watch the boring old breath. Okay. And the bit of you that does it is your mind. And the bit of your mind is the attention. So now there's other bits of your mind as well. There's one that's called a mindfulness, which is this big fancy word in the West. It's almost like its own religion now. But actually, what it's referring to is simply short-term memory. So these parts of our mind, whether you're a murderer or a meditator, you need attention, you need intention, you need, you need discrimination, you need alertness, you need good memory, mindfulness. These are not virtuous in their nature. Whether you're a bad or a good person, you need them. As Lama Zopa says, thieves need mindfulness. So mindfulness is one part of your mind that's playing a crucial role right now. It's going to be it's the part that keeps your attention on the object without forgetting it. Then there's another part, Dalai Lama calls it the policeman. That's called vigilance or alertness. And that's kind of watching, making sure all the bits do their job. So of course, we're not noticing all these bits, but I'm giving names to them. This is the Buddhist analysis. But it's, so, just for five minutes, or let's say four minutes, we're going to make this strong determination, as much effort as we can, it's as if you're driving 100 miles an hour on the freeway, and there's no way you're going to space out. It's almost like that sense of a sense of kind of um, a sense of determination, and a little a need effort, you not know, just space out, because that's another misconception about meditation. This is a major misconception. We think it's a relaxation technique, utterly and completely wrong. There are some wonderful meditation techniques in yoga. We need them badly, but this concentration technique is absolutely not, not a relaxation technique. If you started relaxing on the freeway at 100 miles now you die. But you learn to navigate between tension and relaxation absolutely as you get better, but you've got to be alert you got to make determination. I'm going to watch that breath. Now, simply because we are addicted to watching, having a thousand thoughts a second, we'll just wander off. Of course we will. So the the, the mindfulness is going to catch it like a hawk. And you're going to bring your attention back to the breath. And you notice wandering off again, you bring it back to the breath. And you wait, notice wandering off or spacing out, you bring it back to the breath. You start to start having, you notice you're having a chat, bring it back to the breath. That's the success of the meditation. Not feeling good, that's another misconception. You've got to feel good, load of rubbish. It is, you've got to practice strengthening, strengthening this attention so it becomes more, more stable. It's helped by mindfulness and alertness. So with determination now, with determination and and confidence, we're going to pay attention to that sensation at at the tip of our nose. It changes a bit when you go in and out with the breath. But just locate that sensation. And then with determination, you're going to simply watch that breath like a hawk. Okay, that's it. That's the meditation.
0: for listening to the Maitripa College podcast. This podcast was produced by Alfredo Piñero, Tiffany Blumenthal, Andrew Hughes, Kate McDonald's, and me, your host, Namdrol Miranda-Adams.